Blog Talk Radio. I turned it down, but apparently it didn't want to go get turned down, so I just started. Hey, good evening, and welcome to Alba Voke. Uh, this is a new show on the American Nationalist Network. I'm very thankful to be here. Thanks to John Friend and Rodney Martin. They started a brand new network to get some more voices out there in the um, nationalist movement or community so we can hear other people talking. Tonight, I have somebody probably you've already heard. Uh, if you listen to John Friend, every show that John Friend does, he does lots of great shows. Tonight, I have William Fink, who is a, bil- a biblical scholar and broadcaster and author of Christogenia.org. Uh, Bill is here to discuss Christianity's true origins, the migrations of the Israelites, who the Israelites are, and how they relate to us. How modern-day Christianity has been twisted and used as a weapon to deceive white Western civilization into submitting to non-white rule. And we'll also discuss how Christianity initially united white European civilization and served as a bulwark against invasions by other races. And then lastly, I hope we get to um, discuss the importance of Christianity in general to the white white nationalist community. And in specific, the role of Christian identity, of which um, Bill is a proponent, can play in turning Christianity back into a shield for white nations. Uh, so at this point, I'll turn it over to um, Bill and have him introduce himself. He's um, He's been out there for quite a few years at this point and is a very knowledgeable on all these topics and um, is very informed and, and can easily let you know all the facts surrounding all of these issues based on his reading of the Bible and other classical literature from that time and through history. 
Hi, Bill. Welcome aboard. Hello. Praise Christ. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I, I, um, I, I'm really just a student. I, I'm just a reader. That, that's that, that's all, all I really um, consider myself to be. I, 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 I spent many years reading um, the classics, reading history books, reading the Bible and, and, and related literature, reading the ancient, um, as much ancient literature as I could get my hands on, the, the um, Mesopotamian and Egyptian inscriptions and, and, and the whole um, realm of, of other literature, re- related literature. And, and basically, we are, in, and, and this has been the, the communist, um, the, the communist strategy, the, the Jewish strategy, communism is basically the, the political expression of Talmudism. Well, their strategy has been to disconnect us from our past, and in that way they can undermine our civilization. What you see today are the fruits of that strategy, and it's working. It's working on all fronts. It's working not only in Christianity. It's working with with um, this re-education of of pagans with this false European history and and a badly misinterpreted archaeology, which leads us to believe that we we have a, an origin and a derivation separate from what we've believed for two thousand years. It, it's it's incredible. Sure. It, it's, hey, Bill, this from our classical history, it is the biggest step in undermining our society, and that's what they've done. Sure. Hey, Bill, can I interject a second? Um, I sure. think when you when you first opened up uh, with what you were saying, you were saying that you were a reader. You know, and as far as I can tell, with with even among the people who consider themselves knowledgeable in in this whole community or movement or whatever you'd like to call it, um, most of these people aren't really readers. They haven't really studied anything from the sounds of it. And uh, I'm later on we can discuss some of the things I've been. Uh, there was a reason I specifically chose you to come on on this first show, and that was to address this whole Christianity issue because. There's a lot of um, ballyhooing going on about Christianity and whether we should dump it. And you have these people who are talking about being lone wolves and they're atheists or all this stuff. Uh, as you said, that this whole idea of communism, and I dare say even capitalism, is the whole Marxist dialectic played out and writ large, where you have communism on one side that promoted straight-out atheism since it, it, its inception. And I can speak to that because my mother was raised in um, communist Czechoslovakia. She was born during the war, and she ended up staying there. My grandmother wouldn't leave with my grandfather when he escaped. And uh, she was raised um, not really understanding anything about God, except for what little my, my grandmother told her. And my grandmother was raised a Catholic. And to her, basically what passed as Christianity was believing that there was uh, somebody looking over your shoulder like a Jiminy Cricket, but, you know, a supernatural being that looks over your shoulder and makes sure that you don't lie and you don't steal and you don't cheat and all these things. Um, so, but I've listened to you for a few years now, and I, I admittedly, I, I wouldn't say I was an atheist, I was agnostic because I've looked at um, a lot of these different currents going on, Baptists and Methodists and 
Catholics and Protestants, and my father grew up, I think he was an Episcopal or a Presbyterian of some kind. I know he was an altar boy, but even he would only go to church on Sunday during um, during um, Christmas. I mean, they only go for the late night mass during Christmas. So it was, he was a nominal Christian at best with the, the idea that all Christianity really tells you is to be a nice person. And... Um, I heard I've heard plenty of people go back and forth in Bali who and they they cut hairs over what makes a Catholic a Catholic and a Baptist a Baptist and even among them now I mean you've got Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists and I had a, a woman tell me for, at a, ch- a Baptist church I do some work for um, that I should join her church because they're Baptists but they're not like they're not crazy like the Southern Baptists they I I guess that means they accept um, homosexuality and whatnot but um, there's so many, you know. So nobody even gets what Christianity is. As they just want to split hairs over, I, I think what you might call um, Pharisaism. They want to split hairs over what you know, this little niblet of that, and this little niblet of that, and that makes you a true Christian, and that makes you an apostate, and all these these crazy things that that amount to nothing because they don't know what Christianity is at its core, right? Because they don't actually study the Bible and. And I mean, we can get into the whole discussion of of um, the way the Bible's been perverted over time, I mean, going way back centuries, but even especially in, in the past hundred or two hundred years. But I, I'm sorry to interject like that. But uh, to, to go back with what you were saying, um, maybe to start just so that people have an idea. I mean, there people who might be nominal Christians now; they consider themselves a Catholic or some kind of Protestant uh, or Orthodox person that has more of what you'd call a universalist take on what Christianity is. Could you speak to how Christianity is actually um, Hebraism, I guess, right, at its core? Well, well, the Hebrew religion of the Old Testament is basically Christianity before Christ. I'm not talking about Judaism. Judaism is a perversion. First century Christian writers made the express statement that Judaism was a perversion of Christianity and that it is. That the, the epistle of Ignatius to the to the um to the Malaysians, I believe it was, and, and he basically told them that Christianity didn't come from Judaism. Judaism came from Christianity. Judaism was a perversion of Christianity. And right. and, and it's a corruption and, and it and, and it's the same people that have perverted Americanism, that the same people that have perverted um, what, what the British Empire, what, what the British nation once was, the English people, that the same people perverted the ancient Israelite people and, and corrupted and infiltrated and, and corrupted their society 2,200 years ago. Right, but it, people don't read. Up. Yeah, people don't read, so they don't make that connection. They, they haven't actually read the Bible in total, for one. They haven't studied well, well, the it. The, the biggest shame is, and, and this is actually taught explicitly in, in today's Baptist churches and a lot of other denominations, they, they believe they don't need anything but the, the 66 books of the Bible, and there should really only be 65 in, in the King James Version. They believe that's all they need. That's what they're told. They're told that's all they need, and they don't want to pay attention to anything else. And then they take those 65 books of the King James Version, and they discard the entire Old Testament. They discard it. That they have no care for history. That 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 they um, take a couple of the moral statements and, and um, 
how do I term this? The, the, the statements concerning salvation which Christ made, they take those, they take them totally out of context, and they misapply them in a universalist fashion. And that is not Christianity. That, that's actually a refutation. That's the antithesis of Christianity. That, that the religion that they've turned, Judeo-Christianity has basically become, it, it's not Christianity at all, it's basically the ideal religion for, for the internationalist capitalist Jew. And, and well, it's it, the best religion that this money could buy, and, and that's exactly how they got it. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it, it does what the Jews want it to do. It makes everybody who is a Christian ultimately slaves to the Jew, Right. Well, absolutely. It makes everybody equal who's not a Jew, and, and, and it makes them all inferior to the Jew. And, and in that manner, the Jews get to rule the world, and, and Christians can't dispute it if they believe that garbage. Absolutely. Well, which is the shape of church. I, I like to call it churchianity. That's the shape of churchianity today. It's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is the antithesis to the Jew. It's the only effective antithesis to the Jew. The problem is the Christians don't read the books of the Bible that they do recognize. And in order to understand the Bible, it's basically like understanding any other writing. You can't understand, for instance, the Federalist Papers or the Anti-Federalist Papers unless you're familiar with the history of the 17th and 18th centuries. And, and the players and the issues and, and the, the economic factors and the geography and, and the history before that. You, you don't understand those papers. You can't understand the Bible unless you understand the history of not only the nations of the Bible, but the nations surrounding it and, and, and their interactions. And, and that, that's the, the Bible has to be understood in its historical context, and the players have to be properly identified. Right. It's all about the context. Like everything else, it's all about the context. Just like when you have the Founding Fathers talking about liberty and all these other things, they were talking in, within the context of a white society. Right? In well, white well, nationalists would agree. White nationalists would agree that any story uh, about the rise of Soviet Russia, which excluded two basic facts. First, that most of the people that were oppressed, persecuted, and killed in that period were, were non-Jews, and most of them were Christians. And second, the, the greater majority of the Soviet proletariat and, and the people on the side of the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks themselves were all Jews. Now, once you see that, you can understand the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, the takeover of Russia, and the rise of Soviet Russia a lot clearer, and white nationalists would admit that. Well, why don't we go back to the Bible and properly identify the parties by their, by their race and, and, and see who they are? And that can be done. Well, white nationalists don't do that. They merely take it for granted that, that the Jews are telling us the truth about the Bible, and therefore they reject it. And what they're rejecting is the only valid foundation for modern white history, period. That's what they're rejecting. Right, exactly. Um, Bill, probably what, what I'd like to do is try to, to get a grip on what makes the Israelites, why you would say the Israelites are white. I, I understand that, say, a lot of um, white nationalists might look at the Bible from 
the skewed versions that they've heard in their church growing up or what little they, they actually know of it being nominal Christians. And I mean, I remember when I was a kid um, growing up, my, my friend was an Irish Catholic, went to a Catholic church. And I, I wasn't raised to go to a church. My mother, my mother, my sister died when she was two. I was about five years old. And my mother never wanted to even, she didn't want to know anything about God at that point. Uh, she just couldn't understand why my sister was taken so young. So that being going to church was never a part of my life. But I'd go, um, I, I'd gone a couple of times with my friend and sit there. And to me, it was very, it was a very foreign event. I'd go there and, and, I, I mean, to this day, I can't really, uh, even though I'm a singer in a rock band, I can't really make out what people are saying when there's a lot of reverb. So I, I prefer, like, if, if I'm singing through a mic, I like it completely dry. And to me, sitting in a church was such a foreign thing because I'd sit there and all I'd hear is this, this priest talking in a, a big cavernous hall and audio bouncing all around the walls. I wouldn't know what he's saying. All I would see are people set, sitting up and kneeling down and sitting down and getting back up again. And apparently they knew where they were looking at a Bible. I had no idea what, what page. I didn't hear the guy telling me what, what page I'm supposed to turn to so I can follow along. So to me, it was all a bunch of show that didn't really mean anything. Uh for for people who probably experience church like that, I mean, I can understand why it really doesn't have any basis in their life because they were probably looking around wondering, you know, if it's a nice day out or even if it's snowing out, they want to go sledding and not sit there in a cavernous hall listening to some guy, you know, tell them to sit down and kneel and all these other things without any specific purpose to it. Um I think what people need to understand is number one, what Hebraism is what Christianity, Hebraism, as you said, is Christianity before Christ. And to my understanding of it, after having listened to you for a few years now, is that Hebraism and Christ himself came to, to uh, legitimize the old law, right? He, didn't, he himself said he didn't come to abolish the old law. He came to confirm it. And what the old law is in primarily, in its essence, was all about um, racialism, was it not? Well, well, it was absolutely all about racialism. I mean, there were some passages that, that say that certain strangers can be accepted in, into the group, and those passages are also often abused, that there are many different Hebrew words that, that are translated very loosely, like words for man, words for stranger, that their meanings, are, are their shades of meaning are lost because we've taken four or five different Hebrew words for stranger and we've translated them all as stranger because we've taken three or four different Hebrew words for man and we've translated them all as man. And that problem wasn't only in the English. That problem was also um, extant in the times that the scriptures were first translated into Greek as well, that a lot of those idiosyncrasies in, in the shades of meanings of words were just lost and generalizations made that worked when the world was white, but now the world isn't white anymore. Now the world is is diverse racially, and those terms don't really work anymore because there are many people among us who would not be considered men in the ancient world. And that's simply the way it is. That's simply the truth. Now... Much, much of the meaning of, of the Bible has been lost 
because of those changes in language and, and um, a poor understanding of the way the words were used in ancient times. Aside from that, we know that these people were white. I, 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 I'll, um, I'd like to explain how we know these people were white. There are 72 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10, and archaeology and ancient classical history tells us that every single one of those nations was white. Every single one of them, without exception. Even Egypt and Ethiopia were white. And we also know that the word Arab, that the Arab peoples are a mixed people, the word Arab is a word which means mixed in Hebrew. And it always meant mixed in Hebrew when applied to groups and tribes of people. And that is the, the exact place. If, if you look in Exodus, if, if you have a Strong's Concordance, real simple, it costs 10 bucks. you look up that word mixed where you see the, the phrase mixed multitude all the way back in the days of the Exodus, and you'll see that the Hebrew word for mixed in that passage is arid, ered. It means mixed. Today, Egypt isn't Egypt. It officially calls itself the Arab Republic of Egypt. They understand that they're mixed in their own language. Now, Arab has become a, a sort of a sort of um, euphemism for for these mixed nations because we don't understand the term Arab and we see it as a race, but really it's not a race at all. Really, these people are, are, are a composite unnatural people which through the misfortunes of history have come to be and have been able to propagate. All of those nations of Mesopotamia and, and northern Africa were at one time great white nations. And history and archaeology prove that beyond doubt. Even the language, the Greek language can demonstrate that. Now, when those nations became mixed, they became the backward cesspools that they are today. And they always will be. That those, that these were the greatest nations of their time, and now they're all the lowest of nations, the most backwards, the most despised, that they, that they have the, um, the, the most barbaric cultures. And if it weren't for, for the Jewish invention of Islam, they'd probably be a lot worse than they are now. And, and that's besides the point. It's they will never be anything again, and and it's because they've mixed. So so these these people are not pure Semites by any means. That's Jewish propaganda. Jews are not Semites. Jews are mixed. Arabs are not Semites. Arabs are mixed. Well, but they I'm have glad a you... Semitic language. Yes, yeah, they I, have I... a Semitic language. They have a Semitic language, just like the Negroes in New York speak English. But that sure as hell doesn't make them English. Damn straight. Hey, um, I'm glad you brought up that whole um, that whole use of language and how it's been corrupted. Every word has been universalized over time. And um, when you finally got to Semite, I mean, there are a lot of people, I, I, what they do, they seem to take words and then abuse them so that they end up burning in our, our memories and our minds as being the abused form of the word, like Semite. I heard um, somebody on a nationalist program saying something about... Um, about Semites not even being a culture so much as just a, a language group. 
that it's Semitic. Well, that, that's not what it comes from. If you actually know the Bible, Sem- Semites come from Shem, one of Noah's sons, correct? Well, well, right. It, it's a group of nations, but it's a group of related nations. It's a group of cultures, but it's a group of related cultures. The Assyrians, the original Persians, the Syrians, and the Hebrews were all originally Shemites. Now, today... That these modern academics would insist that the Persians were Aryans and that there was an Aryan injection into Assyria. And my counterpoint would be that the actual Hebrews, Syrians, Assyrians, and Persians were all Aryans originally, but they're not all Aryans today. In fact, today the people in those regions aren't any of those tribes, and they're all mixed. Sure. Well, if you go on, um, we can't study. You, you can't come to the truth if you want to study history backwards, and and if you want to insist on extrapolating the nature of people groups back into history, that doesn't work. Our modern history tells you that doesn't work. You can't imagine because there are Negroes in Richmond, Virginia today that Negroes were there 400 years ago. It's ridiculous. How come? The average white nationalist will easily accept that ancient Egypt was white, and they'll easily accept that the ancient Indians were white, the the Aryan culture in India, but then when you tell them that the Hebrews were white, why do they scoff at that without first examining the evidence? It's ridiculous. It's a total cognitive disconnect. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so illogical to accept that we know that in southern in Egypt, you go back to the earliest dynasties of Egypt, they're digging up mummies that have blonde and red hair. They're obviously white people, right? And well, to think, red hair, blue eyes, and, and white skin, yes, they were white people. Yes, absolutely. Now, maybe it would be one thing to, to look at it perhaps in a way that the, the original Israelites that left Egypt with Moses were maybe... I mean, I, for want of a better term, say pilgrims, they, they were more or less escaping Egypt because it had become a multicultural uh, cesspool, hadn't it? Well, well, Diodorus Siculus, Diodorus Siculus, he he um he recorded for us. Now, now this man, what was a great historian, he was an extremely well-read man. He compiled what he called the Library of History. He compiled his library of history from all of the historians of his time that he could collect and and make a synopsis of of their histories and and correlate them. A a lot like a general history book is written today from from 50 or 100 or 200 books that have all the details in them, and and you want to create a general narrative. Theodore Siculus did just that in in the mid-first century B.C., he wrote up until just after, the, maybe 10 years after the death of Caesar. Now, he quoted Hecatahius of Abdera in relationship to the Exodus, talking about Moses. Theodorus Siculus had accepted Moses as a historical figure and the Exodus as a historical event. And he said that those same strangers in Egypt they didn't all follow Moses, that a lot of them set sail and went to Greece and founded cities in Greece. 
Now, when we study the Greek, the, the earliest Greek historians, the Greek classics, we find that the people of Thebes and Greece, they were Phoenicians. They were called Phoenicians, that they were blonde and they were fair-skinned. They were described by Euripides, by Aeschylus. These are historical people. The people of Thebes, the play Seven Against Thebes, and, and Euripides called his version of the same story Phoenician women. These people are historical people. They actually warred against the Spartans and the Athenians in the Peloponnesian Wars. We know these people very well from history. They were fair and they were blonde. Now, we had the Danans. The Danans, by all ancient Greek accounts, were those same people that Diodorus Siculus, quoting Hecatahius of Abdera, told us had left Egypt and departed from the group of, which, which had embarked with Moses and sailed by sea instead, and they founded the Mycenaean culture in Greece, and they were fair, white, and they were often described as having either golden hair or red hair. And that's throughout the Homeric literature, the, the epic cycle, the tragic poets, all of these accounts totally agree with one another as to the origin and the nature of these people. Now, that's Diodorus Siculus accepted the Exodus, Strabo the geographer accepted the Exodus as historical events, and accepted the fact that these people were white because they accepted the fact that these people not only followed Moses out of Egypt in the Exodus, but a lot of them departed by sea earlier and founded many major cities among the Greeks. And, and Greek, of course, is not um, a word that's a, that, that describes a tribe or, or a single race. Greek is really a culture and a language group. Right. So when Greece became an empire and spread out, Everybody, all the ethnic groups that were around Greece, all the way down to, I would guess, northern Egypt, um, where Alexandria was, that, that became, basically, that came under the cloud of Greek. People spoke Greek. People had a, a, a Greek twist on their culture. They adopted that, right? Well, well yes. In, in the Hellenistic period, a, a lot of people were, were, were Hellenized. They were made to be Greeks who, who weren't even white, a lot of them. And that included a lot of the Egyptians and a lot of the Arab peoples, the Edomites, and um, and all the way to the Indus River. Now, most of those people at that time were white, but a lot of them were not. What's the, a lot of Bill, them were the ancestors of people we know as Jews and Arabs today. Right. Do you do you think a lot of that history was lost when the the um, the library at Alexandria was destroyed? Well, well, yeah, it, it's that, that's a signal. That, that's a signal event. It, it's books have been lost for a long time. Books were lost long before the Library of Alexandria was was destroyed, and, and that's because until the. And I hate to give it credit for anything because I am not a Catholic. All right, I, I do not. Um, I do not have much esteem for the Roman Catholic Church, especially the Roman Catholic Church of today. However, before the Roman Catholic Church, before um, the Church as a European institution, the only thing that drove scribes to copy books was profit. 
Now, when Christianity came along, of course, Christians preserved their biblical documents as best they could. But as far as the the, the profane literature, and by that I mean the non-Christian literature, the only thing that drove copying those books was profit. That there were really no institutions that, um, except in particular instances, that tried to preserve the literary heritage as we know it today, as we see develop with the Catholic Church later on. And in truth, if it weren't for the medieval Catholic Church, we wouldn't even have the Eddas today. We wouldn't even have any of the Germanic pagan literature today. The medieval Christian church, the medieval Catholic church, preserved the Germanic literature. They didn't preserve it perfectly, but they preserved it. And they also preserved all of the Greek and Roman histories and all of the pagan poetry and literature. A good thing for all those um, self-sufficient, busy monks, right? Well, well right. And, and, and today's pagans, that they owe that debt to the Catholic church for preserving their literature. Whether they want to admit it or not, whether they want to like it or not, Christianity has always sought to preserve European culture. And that's the proof of that. Now, they didn't have later on when the Jesuits and, and, and the Spaniards and, and the, the, the South American you know, um, settlement, colonization of, of the Spanish, they did destroy a lot of um, the, the literature of, of those races, but, I, I, I mean, I don't have any sympathy for them, to, to be honest. It, it, it might be interesting to um, be able to decipher it as a historical novelty, but I really don't have much sympathy for them. It, it's um, our, our own culture, the Christian church, the Catholic church has always attempted to preserve. And, and the medieval monks preserved all the pagan literature and all the, the literature of Greece and Rome. But... but we have a lot of um, a lot of early writings, a lot of histories, which were not preserved simply because they didn't sell. And I'm talking about during the Hellenistic period, simply because the work didn't sell, scribes didn't have much interest in copying it. Bookmakers didn't have much interest in copying it. So, well, so no yes, yes, we did lose a large volume of literature. In, in the loss of the, the Alexandria. However, we don't know if we'd have had that literature anyway today. We can't say we'd have had that literature today. Well, with with, with the, um, the Arabs and, and, and the Mongols and the Turks having at various times controlled those areas, it, it's pretty clear just from looking at the Great Pyramid that that the Arab Egyptians of today really don't have a care for the past of Egypt. And they destroyed the Great Pyramid. They destroyed the casing shells. They purposely destroyed the casing shells on the Great, on the Great Pyramid as, as an easy mine for building supplies. So, so it's that the only reason why they give that, that, that archaeolo- those archaeological artifacts any care at all today is because today they know they could make money from them. They could make money from those silly Europeans coming to visit them. They could yes. make money by selling books and pictures and, and things like that. that. That's the only care they have for that stuff. Sure. Well, they were they pretty much... They could care the- about it five, six hundred, a thousand years ago when they, when they were tearing the Great Pyramid apart. 
No, they were pretty much like cockroaches and scavengers, just pretty much crawling over what was left of, of a great uh, civilization. So we can't really take it for granted. Well, we can't really take it for granted that if Alexandria weren't destroyed in the third century and, and, and later, we can't take it for granted they'd have saved it until now? Papyrus, papyrus is, a, is a problematical, right? But because it decays very rapidly. And if it's not copied over and over again or copied onto a better medium, su- such as the, um, the, the animal skins, the vellum manuscripts, which are made from animal skins, which are a little, a lot more durable. Papyrus, papyrus books have to constantly be copied over and over again in order to be preserved. They don't last long. Sure, and is that what those scrolls were that that were burned up in the um, library at Alexandria? They were yeah, all yeah. papyrus. Well, most of them, most of them were most likely papyrus. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we have a general idea of how how history can be botched with, but you know, just for the sake of people who. Uh, I well, let's we'll forego trying to convince the atheists uh, on the the our outside fringe for the time being, but just um, to enlighten people who consider themselves Christian, at least nominally. Um, can can we go back and and just discuss um, Genesis in a in a nutshell, more or less, the whole Genesis creation event, how we know that that Adam was a white man. And how we know, and why it's important that the the genealogy of Adam all the way down through Moses and into um, Shem and Noah and all these people, why genealogy is so important, and and that's what makes the Bible from cover to cover basically a, a whole racial screed. Well, well, to me, I, I understand that the, the books of of Moses, if if we want to refer to the first five books of the, of the Bible as the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, I consider them the earliest, um, the, the earliest history of our race. Now, there is um, Sumerian literature and Akkadian literature, which is older than the Pentateuch. That there are definitely Sumerian poems, inscriptions, that like the Epic of Gilgamesh and and things like that, the the, the Sumerian creation account, um, the tale of Inanna descending to the netherworld. That that's just a few examples. What which date to 2500 BC? That there's no doubt, but they really aren't histories. That they're myths and and they're little bits and pieces uh, of a greater narrative, but they're not histories. But the, they are. Um, they are us, though, aren't? Are they not? Those people? Well, are well, they yes, not? They're various branches of our. They're various branches of our race, and their, their myths are very similar to, and in many respects, very close to what we find in the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes from a different perspective, but very close. And there are many parallels that can be drawn not only with the Hebrew Bible and Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamian literature, but also with the earliest Greek myths and poems and, and Mesopotamian literature. It, it's clear that these um, three branches, the Hebrew literature, the Greek, the, the earliest Greek literature, and the Mesopotamian literature are all very closely related, and that all three sets of myths, if you want to call it all myths, came from the same sources. 
that there should be no doubt that there's m- much evidence of that on my website. I've done podcasts on that. I- I've given um, explicit comparisons of lines from the epic poets, from the tragic poets, comparing them with, with lines from the Bible. And early on, it's the same culture. Sure. Uh, Bill, just to interject quickly here a second. You know, I, I've seen, I've actually seen people say that the Bible, that that proves that the Bible is actually the Jews, the Jews have stolen culture from everybody else and pieced it together to create the Bible. Well, what, what would you say to that? Not, well, well, that's absolutely not true because it, it, it's, first it's very clear that writing came to Greece from the Hebrews. It can be proven from archaeological artifacts and from a study of of Linear B and and the the archaeology of Crete and from a study of the language, the phonemes, the the language itself, the, the words that are cognate with Hebrew words, the ideas that are cognate with Hebrew words, the, the, and the historical accounts of all the Greeks that writing came to Greece from the Hebrews, from the Phoenicians, the people whom the Greeks called Phoenicians. That writing was Hebrew, and a lot of that language was Hebrew, and a lot of those customs were Hebrew. But it's very clear that the Greek was derived from the Hebrew. The Greek culture and, and a lot of the that the facets of Greek mythology came directly from the Hebrew. And, and that's, the, the, the Greeks admit that the letters and, and the language came from, originally from the Hebrews, from the Phoenicians. Well, that's true of Welsh, too, is it not? Well, well I'm not a student of Welsh. I, I, won't, I, I understand and I could prove that there are hundreds of ancient English words that came from Hebrew. But I'm not a student of Welsh, and I won't comment on it. Okay, fair enough. But, um, you know, I just saw recently a study. They were talking about, um, I think it was, um, I think it was um, Tan Staffel on, on um, the White Network was talking in a, his last program about um, seeing a study about um, genetics and saying that the oldest genetics were Celts of Western Ireland. Now, uh, I've heard you talk about the Phoenicians, that they were great sailors, and they were actually already out to the Emerald Isles mining um, tin in the early Well, well there's actual historical evidence of that, right, in, 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 in ancient history books. Right. So they, they are ultimately the same people, and probably when they took off and they were traveling around, set up settlements to mine tin and whatnot, and the... Uh, the people of Western Ireland might be the the least polluted of of that whole genetic line. No, all the places theoretically in Western Europe. In Western Europe, all the places where we find Celts in the historical period, and I'm talking when I say the historical period, I mean from perhaps the time of Herodotus forward. Herodotus is the first. It is the first actual. Um, profane, meaning non-Hebrew, non-Christian, historian whose writing survives. There were a couple of older historians who were known to us, but their writing did not survive, right? Herodotus is the first real historian whose writing survived, 
And I count, when I say the historical period, I mean basically from his time forward. And he wrote of, of the, um, the Persian Wars, and, and he himself actually wrote from about 450 to about 430 B.C. And that's, I count that period as the beginning of what we might call the historical period in Europe. Now, the Bible goes back a thousand years before that and draws a very good picture of the, the Mediterranean and, and, and the Levant and, and the people and, and the wider area, too, at a time a thousand years before that. But it's not really a history of Europe, right, the, the Bible. So, right. so um, to me, the historical period starts with basically Herodotus and Thucydides. And, and wherever we find Celts, we find that those are areas that were traveled and settled, colonized, and, and where trade was um, acquired by the Phoenicians. And some very clear lines in, in language and, and custom and archaeology can be drawn back to the Phoenicians. And those people, their, their, their derivation comes from the Phoenicians. And I would consider them not really properly Celts, but proto-Celts, perhaps. And, and they're the Phoenicians. Now, now right. there were Japhethite peoples that the Bible considers Japhethite. There were Japhethites in Europe for 1,500 years before the Phoenicians. And the Bible tells us that. However, those people left us no history. Not one line of written history had those people left us. Writing in Europe, writing did not start until the Homeric period in the 7th century B.C. The Bible's a thousand years old by that time. Right now, but these Chepetites would be considered Israelites, right? No, no the Chepetites, the, the, the descendants of Chepet in, in Genesis chapter 10, that they could be identified most of those people in Genesis chapter 10 can be identified. That's a pretty accurate picture of what the white world looked like at the time of Moses, 1500 B.C. And, and those people, can, the Jephethite people can be identified as the Thracians, the Ionians, and, and the people of Tartessus or, or southern Spain, and, and um, the, the Rhodians and the few other tribes that came from them, the, the, um, the Mosque and, and, and the Tabarni who dwelt, that, that's the way they were identified by the Greeks, who, who dwelt along the Black Sea along with the Medes. But those would be the Jephethite tribes. They were the, the, the earliest, um, and, and I, I would like to say historical, but it goes back 2,000 years be, before the histories began, but they were the earliest Settlers of Europe who we know from literature. Let's put it that way. And I'm referring to biblical literature. But, you know, the language of the Persians and, and the Babylonians and the, the, the Assyrians later on and, and their dealings with people in the West basically corroborate the, the, the accounts of, in the Bible of who those people were. All right, but that would. Would you say they're they're white people? They came out of did they proceed? Well, well they were all this? white. All, all of the descendants of, of Noah listed in the Bible, they're quantified as descendants of Noah, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They were all originally white. 
Okay, so so they are just and it's descendants of Ethiopians were originally white. Right, but but the Ethiopia you're referring to is not the same as the one in Egypt, is it? Or is it is it located somewhere else geographically? Well, well, the or... Hebrews identify two Cushes if, if you pay attention to the biblical narrative, and and the Greeks identify two Ethiopias, and and, and they basically correlate with one another. The Hebrew land of Cush, which Moses obtained a wife from, was actually what archaeologists would term the first Babylonian empire. And that had extended, in the time of Moses, all the way to Arabia. And if we pay attention to the biblical narrative, Moses' wife and father-in-law are identified three ways as Ethiopians in English, the Hebrew word is Cush, as Kenites and as Midianites. Now there's reasons for that. Ethiopia was actually what the Hebrews called the Empire, the first Babylonian Empire, which encompassed Arabia at the time of Moses, which included Arabia. And Kenite was a, a vocational term. And I know it's also the term of the, the, the word applied to the tribe of the Kenites but it's a vocational term as well, and it means smith. And by tribe, he was identified as a Midianite, and the Midianites are also descendants of Abraham, Genesis chapter 25, and they dwelt in Arabia. That is no doubt. And, and, and um, Moses did not ob- obtain his wife from the Negro, from the black parts of Africa below Egypt. That's ridiculous, and it's contrary to the scriptural record. That now... The, the Midianites were white. The, the, um, all, all of the people that came from those Genesis 10 nations were white. The word Ethiopia actually comes from a Greek word, ahithops, and, and ahithops means shining face. That's what it means. It means sunburnt face. It does not mean black. That, that's a, that, 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 that Ethiopia means black is a misunderstanding of later Christian writers, for the most part, it doesn't really mean black. Right, another perversion of a term, yeah. Yes. Now, one of the most famous Ethiopians of Greek literature was Memnon. Memnon the Ethiopian. Now, Herodotus had wrote about the Ethiopia of the East. That's how the Greeks identified the first Babylonian Empire. The Hebrews called it the land of Cush, the Greeks called it the Ethiopia of the East. And one of the most famous Ethiopians of Greek literature was Memnon the, Ethi- the Ethiopian who's mentioned in the Iliad of Homer several times, and he was the legendary founder of Susa. Now, Susa is the capital city of the Persians in the historical period. From the time of the great Persian kings, Darius and Cambyses and and Cyrus, okay? So we have an Ethiopian Memnon accredited with building that city. He was a white man. Memnon fought on the side of Troy in the Trojan Wars, according to Homer. So, So we have a whole body of ancient literature based on these Ethiopians as being among the founders of um, Western civilization, if I can call it that, in Mesopotamia. Now, in the Bible, we see that Nimrod is a descendant of Cush, and Nimrod founds the first 
empire recorded in the Bible, the first Adamic empire, and, and, and from the cities of, of Tauna and Akkad and Sumer. That now, that is the beginning of what we would call that first Babylonian empire, which was the Ethiopia of the East. Because wherever you see the word Cush in Hebrew, the Greek equivalent is Ethiopia. Now, the Ethiopia south of Egypt on the African continent, that was a colony. That, was, that began as a, a settlement from Mesopotamia. Okay. And its name survived there, but it didn't survive in Mesopotamia. I, I think this is why a lot of people get lost, because there's so much information to know, Bill. I mean, to... to when when you hear of Darius and all these other these other people, all you hear about is how they they fought against the Greeks and they lost, and that and history writes them off. I I I I'd like to go back actually to I think what Genesis three and the creation of Adam. If, is is that Genesis three? Well, well, real quick, you know, if you look at if you look at some of these movies that are published lately, and and I really don't watch them, but but I've I've heard enough about them. If you look at some of these movies, you'll find that the Persians are portrayed as Negroes. And the Greeks, Xenophon, Xenophon was in Persia. He was a general in a Greek mercenary army in Mesopotamia, and he portrayed, he portrayed the Persians as being lily white. He marveled at how white they were because they never took their clothes off in the sun. Yeah, well, before I even went back, yeah, before before I even went back, was going to go back to um, Genesis three. I, I did have a question about them. Is that was that that um, Persian Empire? Were they were they all white, or because it was an empire, they were already bringing in other races under their control? Well, well, it's hard to say. It it it, it really is difficult to say when exactly. The black blood of southern India started to creep into what we know today as Afghanistan and Iran. It's hard to say. But at that time, they were all white. The Persians were white. And there's little doubt from the histories that they were anything but white. So you don't think the they Pers were using... You don't think they were using the duskier people as um, as mercenaries or conscripts like like they did in I've early um, Egypt? I, I've never seen historical evidence of it. Okay. Yeah, now, I mean, I, I, have I, seen archaeological, I have seen archaeological evidence that leads me to believe that some parts of ancient Ariana were, were already somewhat mixed by the second and third century A.D. I've seen archaeological artifacts that lead me to believe that, but, but there's no evidence at all that I've ever seen from the period of the great Persian kings, that the um, Achaemenid uh, kings, it, it's hard to pronounce that word, that, that, um, that, that there were anything but whites in Persia. Now, there was always a, a Kenite, Edomite, Canaanite element in Mesopotamia, the Hittites, were considered accursed by both the Hebrews and the Assyrians, that there was always that Canaanite element that, that they're the actual ancestors of today's Jews. But, but even with that, those people were white of skin. More like mulattoes. 
Well, well, no, more like um, the, the very light-skinned Arabs of today or, or, or today's Jews. That they're, yeah. they're for, they're, they are the forerunners. The Canaanites are the forerunners of the Jews. They were mulattoes that, that they were. Um, that they they would be considered white today. But they were of mixed races, right? Well, or well, or are they a race they unto have themselves? A, a background that. that that indicated that they race mixed and, and um, they were accursed by the surrounding nations, by the Hebrews, by, by the Syrians, by the Babylonians. They considered the Hittites and the Canaanites accursed. Because they weren't, they weren't the same race, obviously. Is that, is that also well, well, true? Yeah, but the, the, even at that time, even at that time, the differences are practically indetectable. I mean, the, the, the apostles of the New Testament couldn't tell them apart. Josephus, the historian, couldn't really... He knew that the Edomites were a different race than the Hebrews, but he couldn't really tell them apart. Right, and that gets, that gets to um, Jesus, or Yahshua, that he could actually tell them apart just by looking at them. Right? Well, well right, and the apostles marveled at that. That there's, that there's explicit statements made in regard to that. Yeah, I recall you saying that. Yeah, uh, just to to get back to let let's get to the um, beginning then to just to, to give people a foundation as to what Hebraism actually is and and as you said it's Christianity before Christ and how it's actually a very very racially aware um, creed. Um, I recall now this was all new to me. I, I remember hearing some other Christian identity pastors talking on. I think um, GCN or RBN or something like that, one of those other stations, when I first got interested in all the things that were going on. Um, and I, at that time, I wasn't, I was still using the term Zionist as opposed to Jew, and I wasn't really cativo on, on all the different aspects of, of what was going on. Except, I, I will say one thing for, um, uh, it was a, actually the Rick Adams show, um, that I first became aware that there was this subcontext of something going on in Christianity called Christian identity. And I was aware already that 9-11 was not what it was, uh, it was made out to be. In fact, I've been, I've been writing emails since pretty much I saw it at the first tower come down on uh, 9-11. And I must have, I must have even before I, I got on the Internet and started being a big mouth, I must have sent thousands of emails out to everybody I knew, pointing out different stories, pointing out the John Warner Defense Act and all the things that Bush was doing and all these other things that were going on and how 9-11 was a fraud. And uh, then I came across Christian Identity. And it, and I, um, I heard a, a fella, I, I heard a, a bunch of people actually um, that used to spar on Rick Adams' show, one guy was named Eli James, and there was another guy, I forget it, maybe his name was Frank or whatever, and they'd go back and forth about millennialism and all these different things. And it was honestly really over my head that what the premillennialists and all these things, they, they throw around all these terms, and, and you have to have some kind of foundation to it to understand any of that, what, what any of that means. And then um, somehow I, I came across you, and I, I don't know if it was through the... Patriot Dames, or I actually found you before I found um, Susie of the Patriot Dames, and maybe I, I actually ended up setting you up with, with her. I may have found you actually through the MindConf Project site, which I was more interested in, because I, I, that's something we can discuss at some point someday, too, but I, I'm more interested in 
discussing this Christianity issue right now. And um, thanks to, to actually listening to you, I, you've got you've got literally hundreds of podcasts that you've done by yourself and with other people that go over, that go right through Scripture and put it all in context, so that one of the biggest complaints people have about Christianity is that it doesn't it doesn't it's it contradicts itself all over the place and when i hear you talk about it and you put it in the right context none of it's contradictory and i marveled at that and i i think i told you maybe 2 or 3 years ago when i i first actually started talking to you person to person that um i'd been through all, all these different talk show hosts and people that are, that were talking about 9/11 and the truth movement and Alex Jones and all these other people that that were coming and going and putting their spin on it and um over time they they would start saying things that I knew were wrong outright wrong or outright lies and uh they were bashing other people you'd have uh, say an Alex Jones bashing the people that are further into the white nationalist um movement like say an Alex Linder and people out there on that side that embrace um uh, national socialism or well Al- he doesn't embrace it but Al- Alex Linder is um is pretty wise as to the fact that um the Jews are behind pretty much everything and that what we know of national so- socialist Germany is all a bunch of baloney but uh, I I told I believe I told you a couple of years ago that you know at, at some point if if I hear you contradicting yourself, you know, I, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'll be the first to, to disappear. I'll, I'll be gone like the wind. And to this day, I have yet to hear you contradict yourself on anything you've ever said. Everything you've ever said has been consistent. Every way you've portrayed the the, um, the Bible and its context and history and, and Christianity has been consistent all right down the line. And I mean, for that, I have to applaud you because before that, if you say Christianity to me, it was a, it was just a morass of people who are, you know, like the IRA and all these other people bickering and fighting each other instead of being what I assumed Christianity to be was that you should love your brother. Love, you know, I couldn't understand why all these people are calling themselves Christians and going around killing <laughs> their fellow Christians. It didn't make sense to me that the one thing that that Christ it said you're not supposed to do is the the thing that we all seem to keep doing. So just just to, to put in a, some kind of nutshell and logical sequence, say um, the creation of uh, God's creation, number one, and well, we don't have to get into that, but um, the creation of Adam, and what I, from what I, I've heard you say that Adam actually means um, to have a ruddy complexion, to show blood in the face, Obviously, meaning that that's a white person. If you can see somebody blush, uh, they they have to have light enough skin to see that. And and if you can take it from there and just kind of give an overall outline of how that made how Adam is white, how we know he's white, and then his line down to Jesus. I mean, the, there is a a geolo- geological um, genealogical framework that all that happens in, right? Well, well, right, right. There's, that, there's, that, that's a huge breath of. Um, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm See, sorry. Yeah, I you know, know. Adam. First, yeah, you know, the the world didn't start six thousand years ago. That those days in Genesis, if you examine them, 
It's really, it's not a science. I know a lot of men would jump up and down and scream when I say this, and that's just tough. A lot of people try to make it a scientific treatise on creation, and that's just not true. And if you read the Genesis creation account, you'll find that the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day. So the days can't possibly represent literal 24-hour days. What we have is we have a poetic account of the creation as it was envisioned and related by God to Noah in, in a vision, and, and that's fine. But it's a poetic account of the, co- of the creation which is meant to, to disseminate certain information, which is what myths are supposed to do. A myth sure, but- is supposed to... It is supposed to transmit certain moral lessons or, or certain important um, pieces of historical information. Now, sure. would you, con- would you consider, to- uh, Bill, would you consider a day in biblical terms more like an eon? Yeah, yes, an eon, an age, an indefinite and long period of time. Now, the, the creation of Adam, the, the Genesis 1 account, the, the pinnacle of that is the creation of the Adamic man. Now, that story is retold from Genesis chapter 2, and now it's, it's, it, now it's a parable. Genesis chapters 2 through 4 are basically a parable. They're not to be taken literally. God wasn't talking to a snake. Trees don't seduce people. Fruit doesn't really hurt us unless it's poison. Um, It's a parable, and it represents a race-mixing account. I can prove beyond any reasonable doubt that Genesis chapter 3 represents a race-mixing account. It's an account which describes a sexual seduction and is the exact same language used of sexual seduction is employed in the ancient Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh, and they were both Semitic languages the Hebrew, and the Akkadian. Akkadian was the language of, of the Assyrian people. Now, the same language, and, and there's, a, there's a paper on my website, Semitic Idioms and Genesis chapter 3, which explains that in detail. There's no sure. doubt, as Adolf Hitler even understood it, that the, the, the premier white nationalist of our time said that the original sin was race-mixing, and he was right. About that, he certainly was right, because the Genesis chapter 3 account and the fall of Adamic man results from a race-mixing event. That's what Genesis chapter 3 is a parable explaining. But we can't see it unless we go read the, the contemporary literature, and the Epic of Gilgamesh was one example of contemporary literature in order to understand all of the idioms. Right, so it, it all comes down to a language issue. And I just want to take a moment here. If anybody is interested in what Bill is saying and wants to study it for themselves, they can easily go to his website, org. That's C-H-R-I-S-T. E N E A, correct? Oh, oh whoa, whoa. Crystal, C H R I S T O G E N E A. Oh, O G E N E A. I'm sorry, I left out the O G. Christodenia. Christodenia. And, and it means race of Christ. Right. Right. 
Okay, so uh, we know that um, that God created Adamic men, and Adamic, as you said before, is, is Hebrew for to show blood in the face, right? Well, well right, and, and there's a qualifier. The qualifier is that, that the apocryphal literature and some of the New Testament literature talks about a race of fallen angels. They're called fallen angels. And we see in Genesis chapter 3, we don't see fallen angels. What we see is the tree of life, and we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree is an allegory for that race of fallen angels. We don't know how long they were here. We don't know um, if their fall, which is, is described as being from heaven, we don't know if that should be taken literally or allegorically. And the bottom line is that none of that matters. What we do know from the Bible is that the fall of the angels happened before the events of Genesis chapter 3. That's all that's important. We have this race of fallen angels who engaged in race mixing and seduced the people who are portrayed as our first parents, the first parents of the, the, the later white race, which is Adam. We know that Adam is white because we know from Genesis chapter 10 that all of his surviving offspring, all of those nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 can be shown to have once been, or still are, white. Now, we also know from the word Adam, Adam means ruddy. That's what it means, R-U-D-D-Y, ruddy. It's used of David in, in the first book of Samuel, where the King James translators actually translated that word as ruddy. We know that Adam means ruddy because dam, the Hebrew word D-A-M, means blood. Now, there are, the, the other races aren't ruddy. So we know from the history of Genesis chapter 10 and we know from the language that it can be pretty safely assured that Adam was white. Okay, that now... There are, other, there are other explicit statements in Scripture um, describing Hebrews, and, and the descriptions insist that they were white. And this is what Hebraism is founded on, right? And And... When Eve ate of the, the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, that was a race-mixing event, and she was tempted to do so by the serpent. And are we to assume that the serpent is what we would refer to today as a Jew? Or is, is that actually, um, was that the embodiment of an evil spirit? Well, well the serpent what was a member of that race of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now... We can, and, and Cain is, is actually, uh, in spite of what Genesis 4.1 says in the Masoretic text, it can be told from many other places in Scripture that Cain is the child of that serpent. Right. Now, now the seed of that serpent, which isn't only Cain, the seed of that serpent is that entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents non-white or, or perhaps partially white, because the scripture tells us they all race mixed, white people who were here before Adam. So and we're not to... Well, they were angels, they were probably white. The, the, so we're, um, not, 
we shouldn't assume that the trees are actual trees. The trees are actually like genealogical trees, right? They represent they're people. Allegories, they're allegories for, for tribal trees, for, for racial trees, yes. Okay. The tree of life and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are allegories for racial trees. The race of God, which is represented by Adam, and the race of the fallen angels, which is represented by Cain. Uh, by the serpent and by Cain. And, and the, the entire rest of the Bible is a story uh, of basically the children of Adam and their necessity to insulate themselves from the other races. And, and Hebraism, the Abraham and, and the patriarchs and, and the Hebrew people, they were only one portion of the descendants of Adam. And and they were the line that was chosen to carry on history, and they have, and that can be demonstrated. However, it's always stressed that these people, they were white people, and their primary responsibility with their God was to insulate themselves from the other races. And, and these people and, were not Jews. Right, and and and, and insulating themselves... Um, I forget what the term is that you use for it, but they're they're supposed to keep themselves separate and whole. Uh, it's holy, right? That they're supposed to keep themselves separate from the Absolutely. other races. The Greek word "habios," right? translated "holy," means separated for the purposes of God. And that that's not to mean that they should be nuns and priests and not have spouses. That they're supposed to keep their blood pure. Absolutely. Right. Now, I, there are a lot of aspects to this when you get into to the whole discussion. That, uh, as you say, the, the Bible is written in parable. It's not, it's not a verbatim, exacting, scientific breakdown of, of, of language that you can understand directly. We're talking about people who used um, a language that was specific to their culture. Say, they were primarily an agricultural culture, so they used a lot, a lot of agricultural terms, right? So when they're talking about the difference between sheep and goats, they're actually using a racial, racial terminology, but they're expressing it in a way that would be suitable for their time and, and with the focus of their culture, right? Well, well, absolutely. I mean, when Christ, who's in a pastoral society, first century Judea is basically a pastoral society, says that when, when um, the Son of Man comes, he'll separate the sheep like a shepherd, like a shepherd, he'll separate the nations. Like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That that is a pastoral analogy uh, of a separation of animals by kind or race. Yes, it's, it's a racial. It's a racial parable. See, I, I think this is exactly where people get lost because they look at that archaic language, and they. It's so foreign to them that they don't want to embrace it. They just think, well, that's just a, a, an old bunch of hooey. They they spoke, and it, that's like trying to tell somebody, trying to have somebody read um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is almost German compared to English of even Shakespeare's time. And you look at that, and it, I, I had to read that in college, and it's not an easy read if you're used to, to reading comic books, say, for example. I mean, you, you pick that up, and it's... A lot of the letters that uh, they have the S set and all those um, Germanic characters in there, and it's it's totally baffling at first, especially if you have no background for reading. I, I went to school to be a, an English 
um, uh, to study English literature specifically and journalism. So I was always interested in language to begin with. Um, so I found that fascinating myself. And it, when I hear you talk about uh, the Bible and interpret it the way you do, I understand that it's a question of language that's that's the sticking point for a lot of people. Because most people, let's be honest, most people today, they, they get on the Internet and they they send emails. Even I do it. You send emails to, to each other and basically half of it is you know creating smiley faces. And using partial sentences, you don't even use whole sentences anymore that are laid out logically. So for these people who are borderline, speaking borderline Ebonics at this point, even speaking high English to them is, is a waste of time, let alone trying to get them to understand some arcane, archaic language and literature from 2,000 years ago. Well, well in order to study, um, in, in order to properly understand the Bible, you have to understand the Hebrew culture. You have to understand the Greek culture. You, you have to understand both languages. I, I don't read Hebrew, but I do read Koine Greek. I, I have a Hebrew vocabulary and an understanding of the way many of the terms were used, and I've studied a, a lot of the, um, the, the literature of the surrounding cultures. That the, the, I've read all of the um, Egyptian, Assyrian, um, Sumerian, um, Hittite inscriptions that I could get my hands on. It, it's and and understand once you understand the the culture, the the Bible becomes real to you in in concert with an understanding of the history. That there's no doubt, and you have to study the language, the history, the archaeology, and the culture in order to understand the Bible properly. Yes, that's true. Right. You know, I, and, I was on... and and most clerics don't do that. Clerics don't do that. That they get a couple of semesters, possibly, uh, of Greek in Bible school, but they don't come out being able to read Greek. They get a couple of semesters of, of history that they might take an archaeology course or two. What they get most of is psychology, and and, and New Age pap. That that's what they study the most, and they they don't really understand the cultures and, and history of the people of the Bible and the surrounding nations. Right. Well, once again, it's context, context, context. Um, hold on a second, Bill. I just lost a call from 619, and I was going to interrupt and say, ask the person to hold on a second and bring him aboard and see what he had to contribute. Uh, and now it looks like John Friend is here. I don't know if it was John Friend calling from another number, but let's bring John aboard and see what he has to say. Hold on a second. Yeah, hey, hey guys. John uh yeah, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, that was me. I was on my cell phone, but I didn't want to <laughs> waste all my minutes on my cell phone, so I just called in on Skype. Sure, no problem. Sorry about that. I, I saw you up there for uh, about four minutes, and I, I wanted to get away, but I didn't want to interrupt Bill because it, this is such a heavy topic, and to just try to get a grip on all the names and all the, the dates and all the, the different things that go on, this is why it's so confusing for people to understand where where all this Christianity, what all this Christianity is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I just wanted to to call in and say, you know, this is uh this has been a great show, you know, what I've listened to so far. And it is extremely confusing, especially if you don't have the knowledge and you know, have sat down and read all these ancient books and really try to figure this stuff out. And and I think I, I you know, I I'm sure everybody knows I interviewed Bill about the migrations of the European peoples, and I think he makes a really good case for their migration from, you know, the Levant in the Middle East 
to Europe over time. And I wanted to ask him specifically uh, because one of the things that I always run into is when you know when I try to make this case, people always bring up the Hyperboreans, which were uh, you know supposedly some people from the north um, that you know ancient Greek uh, philosophers and poets and whatnot wrote about. And I wanted to ask Bill about this because I'm still trying to figure it out. Again, I think he makes a good case for the European peoples having their origins in the Middle East. But what you know, I, maybe you could address this real quick. Well, well, you, you know, how far north the Hyperboreans were is relative. And if you read, some of the historians insist that Hyperboreans describe simply those people that lived along the Danube. All Hyperborean means are, are the people that live under the bears, on, in, in, in the furthest reaches of the north. However, Strabo and Theodorus Siculus and several other ancient Greek historians explained that nobody lived north of the Danube on account of the cold, that it was too inhospitable a climate for men to live. Now, I understand that in Britain we have the Gulf Stream and the climate's warmer and, and it reaches some of the surrounding areas also. However, and there were people there at an early time, but the Greeks didn't see those regions as right, well being in the north like we perceive them to be. The Greeks drew their map a little differently, and we would not consider their map entirely accurate today, right? Hyperborean right. simply means the northernmost people, and different Greek writers used it to refer, used the term to refer to different peoples. It, it's, and, and, and the Greeks always had, they always depicted the peoples on the edges of their world in fantastic descriptions. For example, the Aramaspi were described as a one-eyed people by Herodotus. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's the, the, the reports that he got. It, it's like the tales of the ancient sea mariners, right? They, they, like Gulliver's Travels and the, the, the little people that live on islands in the Pacific. It, it's just tales brought from afar that, that are basically traveler stories. That sure. doesn't necessarily mean that, that they're accurate. And, and different writers at a later time accepted them or didn't accept them or applied them in different ways. There, there were right. no... If you, I don't care how many Greek classics you read, you won't come up with a consensus on who the Hyperboreans were. And the Greeks had no knowledge. The Greeks, up until the Roman period, had no real knowledge of anybody north of the Danube. Herodotus explained, and he visited the Danube River Basin personally, and he explained that the lands north of the Danube were vacant except for one group of people called the Siganahi, and the Siganahi were colonists from the Medes. And that could be corroborated by Strabo because Strabo identifies, and, and, and he doesn't really pay the Herodotus' account any, any mind. He identifies the people known as the Siganahi later on living along the edges of the Caspian Sea, right where Herodotus so, said that the Siganahi north of the Danube came from. So, um, so, so it, they were the only people he knew that were north of the Danube, and they were colonists from Mesopotamia. 
Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and David, I'll just ask this one last question, and I'll let you guys continue on. Um, so, you know, guys like uh, John G. Bennett, uh, Blavatsky, Julius Evola, these guys are just basically, you know, uh, there's no real basis in their thesis that, the you know, the Indo-European culture comes from the north. They're just sort of speculating. And it's it's, it's not really... it, it, it was actually yeah you know it was it was speculation all the way back to the days of Jordanes the seventh century Gothic historian okay simply because for, for so many generations without any written history the Goths had occupied certain lands in in the Baltic he imagined that they came from there that they originated from there but the historical accounts from the classic writers centuries before Jordanus are quite different. All the historical accounts had the Germanic peoples coming from Asia and ultimately Mesopotamia, and not from the north. The north was an inhospitable climate that our ancestors did not spend great amounts of time in in antiquity. Not at all. If you read the accounts concerning the German peoples of of Tacitus, of, of Strabo, Abidor, Siculus, and earlier writers, you'll find a people that are described as highly mobile. Strabo said that the German tribes were still living in their wagons in the first century B.C. They were still living in wagons. They were always on the move. They were not settled. They did not have big cities. They did not have any civilization in the north. All the archaeologists can pull up or this culture or that culture, they get a few bone fragments and some flint tools. Well, Berlin, Hamburg, Strasbourg, those cities weren't built by people that had nothing but bone fragments and flint tools. That's bull. Back when those bone fragments and flint tools were supposedly dated to, at that time there was no Hamburg and there was no Berlin and there was no Strasbourg. You cannot connect those cultures. You can't connect the Magdalenian culture to modern Germans. It can't be, the lines can't be drawn. Our predecessors are not necessarily our ancestors. And that's the mistake they all make. You, you know, you find a few flint tools in, in, in Sweden and, and that are 6,000 years old, and all of a sudden some damn Jew imagines that, that Stockholm came from that. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> the modern Swedes were in Mesopotamia 6,000 years ago. Okay. Well, th- thanks for taking my call, David. Uh, that, was a, that was a good answer, Bill. <laughs> I'll, listen, I'll listen off air. Great. Thanks for coming aboard, John. All right. Well, yeah, that uh, that makes perfect sense, Bill, because obviously we were just getting over an ice age about what twenty thousand years ago, thirty thousand years Absolutely. ago. It was not <clears throat> even that long ago. Not even that long ago. The forests of northern Europe are not old at all. They don't. I, I don't think they date to the time of Christ. Right. Exactly. And the whereas the coast where the Phoenicians were going up to the Emerald Isles. That that coast was being affected by the um, Gulf Stream, so it would have been warmer, and the, the the ice would have been receding from there earlier than the interior, where you have Germany, and then you go out to the to um, Western Russia. I mean, those places are are like the Midwest here in the United States, and even a little bit up here in the Northeast, where I am, you you get a lot of Arctic weather here. 
And I can imagine what it was like 10,000 years ago. For for centuries, the Germanic tribes, the Goths, the Saxons, the Cimmerians, wave after wave of them were trying like hell to establish themselves south of the Danube and west of the Rhine. Julius Caesar wrote about the Germanic tribes, how inhospitable Germany was, and how they were constantly pushing west of the Rhine in in order to settle in in the more temperate climates. And they were coming from Asia. Well, Rome pretty much took up all the good area, right? I mean, that's why they didn't really bother going into the Germanic area so much because they didn't see any point going up there. The the people that were coming out of the Mediterranean, why deal with that, the the inhospitable interior of of Europe where they can see the Germanic tribes are struggling to survive? Same thing beyond Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. I mean, who the hell wants to go to Scotland? Well, the Romans actually... (laughs) I'm sorry, the Romans actually did try for quite some time to conquer the Germanic tribes north of the Danube, and it was always far too costly, and they always failed. That They never really had any lasting victories. In, in um, Well, well the, 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 um, the perfect example is the loss of two legions by Varus in the Tudorberg Forest to Hermann. So, so that, that, that's the famous example, right? I think that was about 6 AD, 9 AD. The... the um, the, the Caesars were constantly trying to trying to conquer Germany above the Danube, and they never could. That they um, that they, they were a, able to defend. They were able to defend the empire, probably uh, pretty effectively until the time of Caracalla. Caracalla, who was in the third century A.D., he started buying them off instead, and, and that was basically the beginning of the end for Rome. Right. Well, I don't know if other people can hear it, but you're starting to sound like a, a pinball machine to me here. I had some kind of digital artifacts following your voice. But, um, yeah, obviously, and well, it couldn't have been that nice up there in general from, you know, during certain periods, because ultimately uh, it was starvation that drove the um, Germanic tribes to, to uh, assault and take down Rome eventually, right? Well, well, I think that I, I think that there was a lot of decay and debauchery and, and corruption within the empire, and that that had weakened it. That the Germanic tribes had been trying ever since about 400 BC to, to um, invade and take over Italy. The Gauls sacked Rome about 390 BC, and, and um, that that was a pretty famous account. And that was when the Romans first learned of the Gauls, by the way. They call, Livy described them as a new and strange race when they started to pour into, um, into northern Italy and they conquered the lands of the ancient Etruscans and sacked Rome. Livy called them a new and strange race to the Romans. So the Romans didn't know the Germanic tribes before that time. And that's, that, that's actually extant from their own mouths. Now, um, from that time, you know, you had the Cimmerians, and they could be identified as having their origin. They could be identified in inscriptions and historically, the Cimmerians, as having their origins in Mesopotamia. The Cimmerians were, um, they were adversarial to the Romans, to the Romans, to the Romans for several centuries, and the Romans defeated them 
uh, on several occasions quite handily in, in the second and first centuries BC. That now after the Cimmerians, the, the next wave was the the, the um the, the Gothic tribes and, and the Huns and, and the original Huns were, were of the same German stock. I mean, later Huns were, were, were um, or, or later tribes identified as Huns appear to be mixed possibly with some Mongol admixture. But the original Huns were, were white, tall, fair. They were described by Procopius, who, who was a, a, um, a Greek historian, probably the last great classical Greek historian he wrote in the 6th century A.D. They were described as excellent horsemen and tall and white and fair by him. So, so you, you had those, the, those tribes forever trying to um, in, invade Rome, and nothing really, they, they weren't able to do anything until Rome became corrupt from the inside. And, and in the 4th century, they, they finally made permanent inroads, and, and the fall of Rome was actually happened about 476 A.D. officially, but it was 100 years before that that Rome, that, that the handwriting was on the wall. That Rome's days were numbered. Am I still with you? Hey, Bill, I don't know if I'm being heard and understood. Um, everything you've said for about the past three or four minutes, maybe even five minutes, has been so garbled. I, all I hear are like a pinball machine going off. I think, uh, I think I've just lost Bill, and I don't know if I'm still on the air either. But hopefully we'll get Bill back. He'll call me back in, and we'll take it from there. What I wanted to touch on after um, we got over the, um, the whole issue about... Um, Adam being created and the fact that Adam is white was to get into um, more of the history after that and how, um, let's see something here. Hold on a second. I hear some texts coming in. Okay, Bill is coming back in. Um, what I wanted to actually get into at this point is um, talk about how Christianity has been perverted since those times. And I think he's back now. Let's take a, take a look. Hey, Bill. David, I have people here in my home listening downstairs and, and on the internet, and I they said know. I sounded fine. Yep. So, okay, I, I all I got was a bunch of noise. I don't know. Every time you you start talking, it, it starts, it just starts like something spattering. But well, I, well, I don't know. The Germanic tribes, the Germanic tribes were pushing into Rome for seven hundred years, and um, until Rome finally fell. It, it, Rome had to become corrupt from the inside before the Germanic tribes were finally successful, and, and it did. And, and that, that 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 corruption took several centuries to manifest itself, but it did. It did happen. All right. Um, to change the subject now, and hopefully we'll we'll have some kind of show. All I can do at this point, I don't know if you hear me well or or not, but every time you talk. It sounds like a pinball machine going, and um, hopefully you're coming through all right when you're talking to other people. You know, other people listening to the show can hear what you're talking about. Oh, great, thank you. Um, is that um, I wanted to touch on how Christianity has gone astray from the original Hebraic teachings. I, we know. I, I don't know if we actually said this earlier, but that um, Judaism itself didn't even come into existence until after Jesus, uh, until uh, in the first century after Jesus had already been um, crucified. 
So what I wanted to do um, was find out um, where exactly Christianity started becoming universalist. Was that was that after, um, say, um, Islam came about? Uh, we know Islam. I believe it, it's been said that uh, Muhammad's mother may have been a Jewess. Um, so I'm one. I from what I recall of Islam and reading about, say, the um, the pirate wars that that got us, um, that um, um, Thomas Jefferson got us involved in over in um, North Africa, that what they would do is that they wouldn't just outright kill you unless you were fighting against them. What they would do is they would enslave you, but if you became a Muslim, um, you would be accepted as part of their community, whether you were white or black or Arab or whatever you were. As long as you were willing to convert to, to Islam... Um, you were part of the community. To me, that sounds um, universalist. Today, we have all these people that are that are worried about um, modern day Islam, which seems at this point to be more, more. Um, I, well, I don't know. It, it's hard to for me to even conceive of what what Islam is now. Are are they more racially aware now and want to turn everybody into um, turn everybody onto Islam? It's still universalist in a way, or is it more? Are they more racially aware than us? Because now Christianity, which is supposed to have been a racial creed, is now universalist, and we're going. We've taken over the mantle from England and the the British Empire in converting everybody into. Well, it was Christians at first, but now it's um, what capitalists, I guess. We're we're going around the world instead of converting everybody to Christians, we're converting everybody to capitalists. So where exactly did Christianity go wrong? Where, where? I mean, is this an old problem, or is, did this just happen recently with the Schofield Bible? Well, well, in the Middle Ages, in, in the Middle Ages, Christians weren't trying to convert Muslims; they were trying to kill them. Islam is a universalist religion. That, that's because universalism is Jewish, and Islam was invented by Jews. Muhammad was a Jew, his scribes were Jews, their inspiration was Jewish. Muhammad was actually half Jewish by blood, that can be documented. It's mentioned by William Alzog in his History of the Catholic Church. It's mentioned by um, Gibbon in the Rise and Foam of the Roman Empire, that Muhammad's mother was a Jew, a Jewess. Now, and, and that his scribes were Jews. Now... The Jews, basically, it, 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 it can be imagined, but, but I believe it can be fairly imagined, that the Jews found Islam very convenient as a way to come to control the non-Christian, non-Jewish Arab masses who, who were formerly pagan, and, and to leverage them as a tool, as a weapon against Christianity. Because when the Byzantine Empire became officially Christian, it excluded the Jews. The Jews were excluded from holding office. They were excluded from converting Christians, from loaning Christians money and interest. That They were excluded from many aspects of, of, the, of, of their control of society, which they had enjoyed in, in the pagan empire for many, many centuries. They were excluded. That They were basically ostracized from society economically, 
because they couldn't be Jews any longer and practice it publicly. Basically, that's what it boils down to. They couldn't be loan sharks, usurers, um, whore masters, panderers, and, 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 and so forth. So they were basically excluded from European society with Christendom. Now, nobody was trying to, no, no Christian was trying to go to foreign lands and convert anybody to, to, to Christianity outside of the white race of Europe until the Jesuits and, and, and the crypto-Jew crime families had taken over the Vatican, the Borgias, the De Medici's, and, and then the Jesuits. And, and it's the Jesuits who are primarily responsible, I believe, for, for these attempts to um, use Christianity as a tool of Roman Catholic imperialism, and the Protestant sects followed suit. So, so Christianity has basically become uh, the, the, the tool of, of Jewish worldwide imperialism. So you, I, I, I couldn't understand a word you're saying. I'm going to try to um, log in on a computer next to me from the outside and see what if I can hear what you're talking about, so I can I can comment on it. I, I think you were basically sticking to the um, the issue of what Islam is all about, right? Well, well, I basically I thought I answered all of your questions. Uh, if you can't understand me, we can't communicate. Okay. Well, like I said, I, I can't hear what you're saying here, so I, I I'm just going with the flow. Um, Seeing as we've got about a little over 15 minutes left before the show's up, anyhow, Bill, I'm going. Like I said, I'm going to try to log in on another computer and listen from outside the studio um, window. I don't. I don't want to mess with what I've got on this computer here in case I I shut down the show prematurely. Um, I just briefly before we talk about how this all applies to white nationalists now or or what their their big gripe is um, with it. Um, I would like to just briefly touch on, well, I'd just like to make the comment that uh, one of the the problems that white nationalists seem to have with with Christianity is is that the the idea that it's a Semitic um, religion and that um, it's a foreign religion, it's a a different race that's been imposed on us. And what I'd like to say to the, the people that are pushing that kind of mentality is that um, from what I know of ancient Greece, the, these people were these people were so um, racist, if you want to put it that way, to use that term, even with its connotations, that that they they made sure that they didn't um, they they wouldn't even marry outside of their own city state necessarily. That's how that's how tight they wanted to keep their their own society together so that they wouldn't have outside influences. I don't know if that's because it, it was fear of different races or, or just different mindsets coming from um, from the way people were living, say, in Sparta as, as opposed to Athens. But it, it would seem odd to me and, and not very logical to, to believe that these Greeks would actually accept, or even Romans for that matter, would actually accept um, the god of a dusky people. I mean, how, how how does that make sense? Well, well, they absolutely wouldn't. The Judeans were were, were well, well, they were white. That they were all apparently white, and, and for the most part, they were actually white. 
except that Judea had, had been comprised of a large number of original Hebrews and a large number of the Edomites, who are the real ancestors of the Jews. You're right, the Greeks were extremely racist. They were racist to the point that if you married somebody outside of your own tribe, regardless of whether that person was white, you were a bastard. Now, the, um, the, the Greek poet, Euripides in Hippolytus, lines 962 to 963, says that the bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the true-born. And, of course, the Bible says that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now, so, so both were equally racist. The Greeks were so racist that Cyrus, Cyrus, the great king of Persia, was considered by Herodotus to be a mule. He was considered a mule because his mother was a Mede and his father was a Persian. So he was considered a bastard to the Greeks. Now, Herodotus explicitly called him a mule and attributes the saying to an oracle of the Greek pagan god. Now, um, for the Greeks, being as racist as they are, that's, a, that's an excellent point, that they would never accept the, the, the god of a bastard race or, or the god of an alien or, or foreign race. They absolutely understood the people of Judea to be white like them, and a lot of Greek philosophy actually came from Hebrew scriptures. The, the, the Greek Pythagoras, a lot of the things that, that, that are attributed to him can be just as easily attributed to Moses. Plato, Plato's philosophy, a lot of that can, can be found in the books of the prophets. And there, there are pretty academic papers written on that topic. The... Um, the, the culture was one and the same. The Hebrews were white. The Greeks admit getting their alphabet, their letters, and many of their arts from the Phoenician peoples of, of, of Palestine, and that would include the Hebrews. That there's no doubt who spoke the same language and used the same alphabet. It, it was a pretty common culture at one time, and those cultures over time diverged as the Hebrew became corrupt and as the Greek became... Um, more, more on, 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 as, Greek, as Greek civilization blossoms, let's put it that way, those two cultures diverged. But originally, they were extremely similar and, and certainly had the same origins. There's all sorts of evidence that, um, that the people of Judea were highly respected by, by the Greek writers, by the Greek historians, and, and that includes Moses. Okay, great. I, I'm I'm hearing you pinball inside my headphones. I'm I'm catching up on on what you're saying on um, my other computer, listening to the website. Hey, uh, so let let's get to the the issue with the the white nationalist um, community, anyhow, and the fact that we've got some some people that are on different networks um, that just came up. I don't know. That it seems to me that some of these people were new and organized um, recently and and got their own network together. And from what I understand. They've actually um, their network uh, closed down recently. On I believe they were on Blog Talk too. In fact, I I had um, I had subscribed to them in iTunes, and I was I'd heard a couple of episodes of them. There was uh, John Friend was involved with them uh, at some point, and uh, they have one other guy I think I, I like listening to. But they, they had a uh, a lot of um, I think maybe three or four other 
maybe even five other people who denounce Christianity every every time they turn around. And um, I, I found it awfully strange that they uh, one of them actually um, actually claims to have been involved with Christian identity um, all the way back to um, that fellow that was around in the early 60s, Pastor Compare. And uh, after hearing after hearing you and even some other people that I don't give as much credence as I do to you recently, um, the way this fellow talks, he 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 was putting um, lumping Christian identists in with with um, with Catholics and everybody else uh, as if there wasn't a, a distinction. I mean, he he threw um, I'm not going to name names, but he was throwing Christian identists a bone, saying that some of them are, are racially aware, but as far as far as I'm aware, that the whole core of Christian identity is, is racial awareness. There's, there's no question. Um, well, but, well, I know the indiv- I, I know of the individual you're talking about. I know of that individual, and I know people that knew Bertrand Compare personally. I've known half a dozen people that knew Bertrand Compare personally, and not. I've asked a couple of people about this individual, and and he has not. He has absolutely misrepresented his connection to Christian identity so that he could tell stories and lie about it. The man doesn't know a damn thing about Christian identity, and he doesn't know a damn thing about the Bible. These people, these people that want to knock Christianity, first, they're spitting in the faces of 1,500 years or, or longer of their own European forefathers. Second, they're denying the, um, the the entire European culture and civilization of, of the last 2,000 years. And third, they're taking it for granted that the Jews are telling the truth about the Bible. How could people who claim to be so vehemently anti-Jewish simply take it for granted that the Jews are telling the truth about anything? I wouldn't ask a Jew what time of day it was and expect him to tell me the truth. So, so these people have another motive. They have another agenda, and it's not what it appears to be. I yeah, I I, I kind of agree with you there, Bill, because a, a lot of these people, for some reason, they don't want to um, they don't want to try and reach out to the rest of the white community to to wake to to shake them by the the scruff of the neck and say, hey, wake up. Um, we've got something we've got to take care of here. We're we're a dwindling minority on this planet. We're, here we are in the United States being told that we're a majority. We're, we're not even really a majority in my estimation of, of the population of this this country, let alone the planet. And um, these people think that we're going to do something being lone wolves. And if we learn anything from Boston, and by the way, anybody who doubts that there were bombs going off in Boston... My wife works at a gym, and she personally knows a woman who lost her legs, and her daughter was hit by shrapnel and almost bled to death at the scene. Granted, I'm the first one, like I said, with 9-11, I knew right away looking at it that something was up with it. I don't doubt that there's something up with this as well, but people were actually hurt in Boston that day. There's no question of it. Um, What they ended up doing with it and using it for, obviously we saw after the fact that they turned it into into a... basically to show all of the United States that we're an occupied country. 
and they will literally shut down a city if they're going after you and they have the media behind them. Basically, we're living in, in um, I'm, I'm not a big movie buff, but I mean from the little snippets I've seen and things I've heard alluded to in the quote-unquote patriot movement, we've basically turned into a running man society where if they point a finger at you, they can shut off your credit cards, they can shut off your entire existence. They can shut down a whole city and look for you. And in the news, and the, on the news, on the TV, on the radio, every 15 minutes, they can issue all sorts of all-point bulletins out and, and mention that they saw you somewhere, this is what you look like, and they'll have the entire city out to finger you. And after they took this kid out, or both of them, both of them out, they, they actually had the, the city of Boston uh, on TV cheering about how great they were and then having this... Boston Strong logo or whatever they were pushing. To me, basically, you know, you could have somebody going around and um, committing all sorts of murders, be a serial killer, and they wouldn't shut down the whole city and send the National Guard after you. This was one bombing event, in, or, or two bombs actually went off at the same time down in downtown Boston. There were all sorts of, I, I mean, I grew up there. I, I used to go to Berkeley College of Music right there on Newberry Street, right around the corner from there. That's right across from the Boston Public Library. There are more cameras in that area. They, they knew exactly who did what within an hour of the event. They, all they had to do was, was put all the video camera tapes from all the surrounding areas, and they knew exactly who they were looking for. So that's a bunch of baloney that it took them days and, and whole National Guard units from all over New England to track these guys down. That's a bunch of baloney. But... Um, the, the, these white nationalists, for for whatever reason, now as I said earlier, Bill, I I grew up in a house that wasn't devoutly Catholic or devoutly Christian in any way. I, I'll put it that way. And even my father, I, I would say he's a nominal Christian. Everybody I know is a nominal Christian. They they basically, I, I mean, I I admit it myself. When I I started being interested in what Christianity was all about, I I would flip through the channels and I saw like uh, what's his name, Jimmy Swaggart. And I, I watched him for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, and I was I was kind of saying, okay, this guy's pretty cool. And I think I, I dropped him even before he, whatever, he admitted he, he was involved with some prostitute or I forget what the heck. All I know is uh, a year after I even bothered watching him anymore, he was crying on, on TV saying he'd sinned and whatnot. But um, we, we well, do well, have let a problem. Uh, let me interject. Who controls the media? The, the Jews control the media. You don't think they're going to put a real Christian on a stage? That that Judeo-Christian is basically a Jew. He may not be a Jew by blood. He's a Jew between the ears, and they Absolutely. all are. He's basically a Jew. He may not be a Jew by blood. He's a Jew between the ears, and they Absolutely. all are. Yeah, absolutely. They're not going to put Christians on a stage. Yeah, absolutely. All of that's a sideshow, so so they can keep Christians distracted and, and under their own control, and, and worshiping Jews. But that's not Christianity's fault. That that's right. not the fault of Christ. That that's not the fault of our Hebrew ancestors. That's not the fault of our Christian fathers, and grandfathers, and great great grandfathers, and great 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 grand. That's not their fault. That, that's not the fault of our civilization that the last hundred years white men have allowed the Jew to, to basically steal it from us and, and turn it into some kind of Jewish perversion of what it should be. 
Right, there's no question. But I, I do agree that with these other fellows that we do have an issue with the Judeo-Christians. And the reason I brought you up and why I the, 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 what's really bothering me is that they don't even see the value in Christian identity. And to me, we're not going to get anywhere unless we can con- convince our fellow whites that we're all in this together and if they're embracing Judeo-Christianity, we have to break through to them somehow and make them realize that this is the same thing as dealing with the, the Holocaust and the true facts about World War II. It's the same thing as dealing with 9-11. You can't let go of these issues. That, that's another issue I want to get into is the whole Holocaust thing. People want to drop these issues. You're not going to get these people, our own people, on board with us unless they realize they've been lied to. And that includes the Holocaust, it includes 9-11, and it includes Christianity. And to me, for these people to throw Christian identity under the bus, uh, along with Judeo-Christianity, that it seems to me they're purposefully shooting this movement in the leg because they want to make it as cloistered and small a group as possible and shut out what we need, which is the masses, because there's there's no way we're going to get political, um, the political um, movement in our direction unless we get numbers behind us. There's no way to do it, and there's no way we're going to win as a, as a small clique of of a, a, a percentage of a percentage that's going to take on this whole massive universalist machine run by the Jews. That That's ridiculous. And, and to be a lone wolf, like I said, they'll hunt you down. You'll just be looked at like, like they look at Timothy McVeigh and all these other people that they, they've managed to isolate. Bill, hold on one second. We've got about three minutes left, and there's a caller from area code 813. I don't know off the top of my head what area code... Where, where they're calling from. But let's bring them on board. I can't understand what you're saying anyhow. I'm kind of lost, and I'm going back and forth between the, trying to hear you through my headphones and getting a lot of noise and trying to hear you through the website on another computer. Let's see what um, 813 has to say, and uh, we'll take it from there. Hold on a second, please. Hey, caller from 813, you're live. Uh, thank you, my friend. And A13 is Tampa area code. I'm sorry. Do you have a question? I I can't hear you either. I'm having the same problem with. Oh, okay. Maybe he was just listening and he, he muted himself. All right. Well, no, go. I actually I, I actually do have a question. If uh, my question is for the gentleman that was just speaking. Um, now, of course, my name is Matthew Scott Sands, and I am the founder of Road to Redemption Ministries, and I actually have a. A blog talk show myself called Fishing for Souls Radio, but I would like this gentleman to define in his, I, I guess in his, in his thinking, what it means to be a Christian. Because to to exclude any any part, um, I mean Jesus never did that. He didn't. He he didn't even hate the Pharisees. He 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 he, um, he kind of instructed them on what they were doing wrong. But to identify as 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 all all brother whitey needs to come together, I mean that's just that that that's absurd, and that's one of the reasons why. Hey, 
Hey, I'm sorry about that. I'm trying to listen on the other computer, and I can hear now that it's coming through the microphone. Yeah, Bill, why don't you uh, address this fellow, what his concerns are, and um, we're running out of time anyhow. We're we're down to the last minute or so, and I, I'd like to go on and on with the, the call, but it's going to end in, a, a cut in about 30 seconds anyhow for people who aren't going to call in. So answer that question quickly, and uh, for anybody who wants well, to listen well, to the podcast. I'll answer that question real quick. Paul said that the covenant could not be amended, Galatians chapter 3. Paul said that the covenants, the promises, the, the laws, and everything else about that Israelite heritage was only for Israelites, Romans chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 8. Christ said, I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 15. Who the hell is he to, to, to fail to identify those people properly and try to apply that, that, that promise made exclusively to Israelites to anybody else? Well, they now, say scripture is full. They, they, say, they say scripture is, they say scripture is foolishness to the wise. My friend, I suggest that you get down on your face and repent. Scripture's not foolishness. I suggest you pull your head out of some Negro's ass. How about that? I suggest that wow. you look in the mirror and wake up and see who the hell you are. And you and you identify yourself as a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian pastor. I'm a real Christian pastor. I'm not some ass clown like you trying to get on my knees in front of all these other races. And, and commit unseemly acts on them. How about that? Wow. Wow. Well, my friend... ...that have destroyed white culture and civilization. People like you are the reason why 200 white women a day are raped by niggers every day. People like you are the reason why these evil beasts are allowed to run around white cities and kill and rape white children. People like you, you did that. Okay. Well, my friend, I'm sorry you feel that you way, but uh, and I, I will pray for you. That's what you are. You're a murderer of white civilization. That's your fault. You go look at the pictures of Detroit in the 1920s and 30s, and why don't you walk around Detroit at night tonight or tomorrow night? Well, my friend, and I have no fear because my life is not my own. My life is Jesus Christ. The civilization. Why don't you do that? Okay, well, my friend, I was a police officer. And get out on the streets of Miami and go try to convert some crackheads to Jesus. Well, my friend, I'm sorry. Let's see where that gets you. Well, I I can tell you one thing where where it won't get me. It it won't get me any closer to you, my friend. And I'm sorry, you have all this hatred in your heart. If if you were close to me, I'd probably make you my bitch. Uh, Well, my friend, uh, I, I find that hard to believe, but uh, hey, you know. You're the reason why America and Europe are screwed up today. You're the reason why white people are getting killed by beasts every damn day. Mm-hmm. It's your fault. Mm-hmm. Okay, hey, my friend, can, can I ask you what happened? Uh, can I ask what happened to you? A parasite. Are you white or are you a parasite? Let's hear uh, it. I didn't hear you. I, I didn't hear you, my friend. You're screaming. Uh, I didn't well, hear you. We're not supposed to have wolves in the sheepfold. Only sheep are supposed to be in the sheepfold. If you're not a sheep, you okay. don't belong. 
If you're trying okay. to bring wolves into the sheepfold, then you're not a scatterer. You're not a gatherer. You're a scatterer. Well, I'm a scatterer of your word, I guess. You're a scatterer of the people of Christ. He said he came to gather Israel. He didn't come to gather Hottentots and Hutus and Tutsis. He didn't come to gather <laughs> squat monsters. He came to gather I don't Israel. Know. I don't know what a squat monster is, my friend, but I probably you don't, know don't what want to. Squat monster is half is full of them. Okay, well, what I, I you know what I don't even want to know what a squat monster monster is. But didn't didn't Jesus say that he wishes none to perish but all to come to uh, repentance and then eternal life? He's talking about the children of Israel. He's not talking about beasts. He's not talking about hot and tots. He's not talking about mandingos. He's talking about the children of Israel. Oh, and and so you didn't it say in Revelation if you add or remove a word, if you remove a word or add a word, your name will be yes, removed it from does. the book of life. The there's only twelve tribes left, and they're the children of Israel. There's only twelve oh. tribes in the city of God, and the names on those gates are the names of the tribes of the children of Israel. And if you ain't one of those tribes, you ain't getting in. Mm-hmm. Well, my my friend, you know, one of us is wrong because we know God isn't because He doesn't lie. So one of yeah, us yeah, is well, wrong. Well, you you keep trying to preach the gospel of the animals, and you see where that keeps getting America and Europe. Okay. All right. Well, my friend, I will continue you to pray for you. That. I don't know your name. You've done, you've done white civilization a great favor. Well, I thank you for that compliment, my friend. But all glory goes to God, not me. Yeah, we'll blame Miami and Detroit on you. Well, that'd be fine, my friend. That'd be fine. I'm sorry that you have so much hatred. Hatred? Racism is love. Racism is the desire to preserve God's original creation. I don't, I'm not sure who the host. Of the, I'm not sure who the host of the show is, but yeah, I think you need to have an episode like Jerry Springer or something and bring this guy on. But uh, you know, hey, uh, That's whatever, you whatever, whatever suits you, my friend. Uh, again, I, I'll continue to pray for you. I don't want you praying for me. Well, I, you I can't you stop me, my me. friend. You're on the road to hell. I don't want you praying for me. Well, you certainly you can't stop me, my friend. You better go pray yeah. for yourself. I do that every day, brother. Okay, uh, so I'm assuming, um, David, that this gentleman's name is William Fink. Yeah, that's me. Biblical scholar. That's me. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, David, I would suggest that you screen your guests a little bit better, my friend. Um, uh, hey, I don't know what to say. I'm, 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 I'm pretty appalled, um, but nothing I can do about it. I'll pray for well, you and your show, David. You you stay appalled. You stay appalled. You got a date with Bubber and Leroy coming. I, I can see it now. Well, I you appreciate that. Bubber and Leroy are gonna love you. And you know, Mister Wayne, where did where did you get your theological degree? Out of the Cracker Jack box. Yeah, that's what I thought. God bless. 